So it won't come as a surprise for you to learn that for much of human history, people assumed that the sun revolved around the earth. It's called geocentrism. The idea that the earth is in the center of all the universe, that everything revolves around us, and that the stars and the sun are, in essence, tributaries or uh, caught in our vital orbit. And this view was very important to many spiritual doctrines. Interestingly enough, what we are often not taught is that pantheists like Aristarchus, 1800 years before the Prussian Nikolai Copernicus, stated that the appearance that everything revolves around the earth was in fact quite incorrect. And he was the first to propose what is known as the heliocentric view that the earth is not the center of all things, that it in fact orbits around the sun and that the sun was one of many stars. So, why am I telling you this? Well, all of us, like children who view the... Uh, the sun, and believe it's something orbiting the earth. It's a natural appearance. It's what seems to be. We all tend to locate at the center of our experience our thinking mind. We tend to believe that our thoughts are what not only is where the self is, who we are, but that our thought is actually what is creating our actions. It's very tempting to believe that before I do something, the instigation is, oh, maybe I should go and get something to eat. And that before that thought, there wasn't any inclination, that the first thing that arised or arose was that idea. It's so tempting to believe that our thought is what is behind our actions and that our thought lies at the epicenter of our experience. So the Buddha was a, a lonely figure in many ways but none so more than he was the first major thinker who basically said thought is not at the center of the human experience. In fact, the Buddha proposed that thought comes about late in the chain of action, late in the circuit of 
processes that create any event in our life, any experience. That thought, according to the Buddha, was something that was, in essence, a part of a chain, a series of words or ideas that occur well after an unconscious inclination has already appeared. So what the Buddha did was he took thought out of the center of the human universe and he placed it like the earth outside of the center. If idiocentrism is the belief that my thought is at the heart of everything I do, and allocentrism is a bit of what's practiced here at New Life. Allocentrism is the belief that we are all part of a collective of human beings and that our thought has to be openly influenced by the ideas and needs and influences of others. Physiocentrism is the idea or the uh, perspective that what lies at the heart of the human being is not thought, but is in fact an entire series of processes that arise from the body and the unconscious mind. And that only later on, as part of this process, does thought appear. So, in the Buddhist Paticca Samapada, where the Buddha lays this out, he says, before there is thought, there is what he calls Vedana, feeling. Before we have an idea to do something, there's already a felt comfort or discomfort in the body. And from that creates an impulse, an urge to change the way things are. And from that, comes thought. But thought is not the first, nor is it the, even the driving impulse. Thought is something very often the Buddha proposes that is simply there to obscure all of the roles that the rest of our mind are playing and the rest of the body are playing in casting us about, moving us around, guiding our actions and our choices. Now, I said the Buddha was a, a lonely figure. It, much like Aristarchus had to wait 1,800 years before his ideas were validated by Copernicus, the Buddha had to wait some uh, 2,200 years before the British philosopher David Hume had the bright idea that thought was not at the center of the human experience. And he, in his treatise, demonstrated that thought was, in fact, a small part of the influences that are in play when we make a decision, when we, uh, behind every action, behind every event in our lives. Of course, all of us are probably familiar with uh, uh, Austrian psychiatrist Sigmund Freud, who 
many might propose, made the biggest dent when he argued that the ego, the thinking mind, was only a very small part of our experience. And it was a little figure that basically was a kind of negotiator. On the one hand, our very ingrained impulses, physical needs to survive, physical needs for pleasure, physical aggressive needs. And on the other hand, the internalized, interjected parent figures and societal figures arguing that we have to repress all of our needs and just do what everybody else wants. And between these two huge influences, the ego, our thought-based self ran around and tried to appease these two great forces. And then later on, Perhaps the final nail in the coffin of thought being at the center of the human mind was cast by a neurologist named Benjamin Labatt, who had the very brilliant and simple idea to simply place sensors on the human body and just give people a button to push. And he put uh, EEGs on the, uh, around the head. And he simply said, whenever you want, push a button. And what he found is before the spike, the telltale spike of thought in the frontal lobe, which we now can place very accurately in the ventral medial region of the left hemisphere and language centers, well before thought arises, in fact a half second earlier, was the telltale physical impulse in the finger and in the lower regions, unconscious regions of the basal ganglia in the brain. In fact, Benjamin Labette said thought arises so late in the process of making a choice or a decision or an impulse that the only possible role it could play is to veto our actions, but not to instigate any actions. We have, as he said, free won't, not free will. Once again, you might have the urge to eat the cookie even after your parents said no, or you might have the urge to steal something or to do something uh, uh, that is mildly antisocial. And then there's the thought which arises that says, oh, maybe this is a bad idea. And that's the part that overrides our impulses. So thought doesn't create the idea, the impulse towards the cookie, the impulse to uh, secretly check the iPhone, the thought to do something. Uh, The thought, or the impulse, I should say, arises much earlier. Our thought is simply that part of us that says, hey, wait a second. So, we might hear this, and it might, it might sound difficult, given all of the appearances we all want to believe that our thinking minds lie at the heart, and the thinking mind doesn't want to let go. It is there not only to override bad impulses, 
but it's there to narrate our lives, to give us a sense of security amidst an overwhelming rush of impressions, a flood of sensations, to make some kind of sense of it all. Without thought, it's a little bit like turning on the television with the sound off and seeing a nature documentary, and you have no idea what the point of it could be. There might be, there might be an image of a frog on the television set, but without sound, we don't know what the idea, what the message is. We just see a frog, and then maybe a series of frogs. And for all we know, the story could be about endangered frogs, or the wonder of frogs, or if it was a nasty documentary, stupid frog, look at this dumb frog. So the realm of thought is there to simply make us feel less overwhelmed by life, to make some sense. But meanwhile... Meanwhile, the body and all the underlying processes of the mind are actually what are driving us around. One neuroscientist says that thought is like the elephant, I mean the monkey riding on the back of an elephant. The elephant is actually steering it around. The monkey just believes it's steering the elephant. The monkey grabs an ear tries to steer the elephant in one direction, the elephant doesn't really care. At most, the monkey, if it really, really tries, it can stamp and hold and pull, and finally the elephant will stop for a second, look at the monkey, and then it will go on. So, when we try to detach our a sense of awareness from its firm grip at thought, when we try to bring our awareness from this sort of enraptured stance where thought seems to be the loci of all our experience, when we try to pull it away and bring it into the body and observe rather than be welded into our ideas, what will happen is, of course, the thinking mind will rebel. It will desperately try to grab hold of our attention. This makes sense. From a very, very early age, as Winnicott, the psychologist, proposed, thought provides a safe haven to make us feel secure when our parents do things we don't understand, when the world seems foreign and dangerous. We dissociate from our sensations, from body awareness from the world around us, and we latch onto our thoughts, and we allow them to take us into fantasies and daydreams and other places so that we can feel less vulnerable. And so in our lives, as we grow to fully adult beings, we can find that it's very scary to let go of viewing the, the world entirely from the perspective of our stories and our narratives. The idea that walking around, feeling life rather than thinking life, an embodied perspective 
rather than a thought-based perspective, can feel very, very foreign. The Buddha proposed that papancha, obsessive thought, will almost inevitably arise when we set about on the spiritual path. Papancha is that inclination of the thinking mind to when we try to become aware of the body. In the Savasava Sutta, the Buddha said the first thing we can expect is the mind to pop up, the thought-based mind, I should say, to pop up with what's going to happen to me in the future. Who am I really? Am I different from the people around me? And is my meditation practice worse than everybody else or better than everybody else? I'm struggling right now. That means I'm no good at this. In other words, there'll be a reactive desire to pull us away from the body, to pull us away from the breath, to pull us away from just being fully present in this amazing environment and to pull us back into the dissociative realm of the churning, ongoing language stream that makes us feel safe, that makes, that creates all that, that kind of voiceover in the nature documentary that ongoing stream that we rally around of words and ideas that we constantly seek security with. And yet, how many times does that stream of language cause us suffering? We might climb aboard that train in the hopes that it will make sense of what's happened. Why am I here, sitting in silence, northern Thailand, this is what's become of my life. How do I fit this in? What's going to happen to me next? And yet, once we climb aboard that train, it very often leads us into very stressful destinations. And by the time we're attached or we're on the train of thought, we very often are so uh, enamored so caught up in the rich thought visuals and ideas. It's all about me. I'm different. I'm unique. That when the thoughts suddenly or subtly turn dark and catastrophizing, maybe I am really different from everybody else. Maybe I will always wind up alone. Maybe nobody really understands me deep down. Maybe my feelings and needs are really unique and nobody will ever get them. So, at first the thought train seems very reassuring, but then it becomes slowly, when we're not even really paying that close attention, suddenly it becomes really dark. And really, actually, I... I I won't get my needs met. I have to work all the time just to prove my worth. Unless I'm constantly busy and proving myself, no one will love me. I'm not good enough as I am. I need to constantly show people that I'm okay, etc. So, 
much of the first day of this practice will be about getting off that train. Getting off the first station it pulls in. In fact, hopefully it'll be about not even get climbing aboard it. Learning how to be present in the body. And when you see that thought train arise, and it may say, oh yeah, here's that thought train, the me train coming along. The me, what's going to happen to me in the future? Maybe I should climb aboard that. Sounds kind of interesting. How's the rest of my life going to play out? Maybe I should view this whole set of visuals and possibilities. Uh-oh. <laughs> so, the realm is to, to stay in the body for the first day, to feel what it is like to be alive, to reconnect with the sensations of the breath, the sensations of movement in the body, the sensation of being in something that is moving through life, keeping us alive. And yet, of course, there will be times when we hop aboard our thoughts and will, uh, before we realize it, we will be caught up on a train and it will be difficult to get off. We'll be caught up in an obsessive worry, a concern. There'll be a thought that keeps on arriving again and again and again and again and again in the station of the mind. And it will become very difficult not to habitually just climb aboard. So the Buddha, in a wonderful sutta called Removing Intrusive Thoughts, he proposed four ways. And this will be pretty much the four uh, practices I'll recommend for today. Um, in the Wataka Santana, he said, the first thing to do when we find that we continually wind up back in the thought-based mind is to, one, if the mind really, really, really wants to think, replace self-centered worrying, stressful thoughts with thoughts that are skillful and are not going to lead anywhere dark and dangerous. So, this idea is that sometimes it's very difficult when the mind wants to think to just make it stop. A great psychologist named Dan Wagner in his book White Bear showed that there's nothing more impossible than to try to get rid of a thought unless you replace it with another thought. So the Buddha here proposes that rather than try to not think, which especially if there's the presence of an obsessive, worrying, catastrophizing, uh, intellectualizing, rationalizing, all the kind of thoughts that lure us in, you'll know we're in the presence of a thought that we need to detach from when, one, it's based on speculation, i.e., it's not based on stuff that we can observe right here and right now. And two, it has to do with self, me. Put the two together. What's going to happen to me? How do I compare to other people? Who am I really? All that stuff is the indication that we need to get <coughs> 
The other kind of thought is the endless speeches about the way the world should be. They shouldn't be playing the song and the loudspeakers. There shouldn't be loudspeakers. It shouldn't be uh, this hot in Thailand. It should be different. I should be running this place. <laughs> <laughs> whatever the mind wants to cook up and, and lecture itself when we're in that presence the Buddha said okay let's just use skillful thoughts what are skillful thoughts one skillful thought is uh, how can I relax and make myself really comfortable in this moment what can I pay attention to that will settle the mind? How can I use the breath in a way that will relax and make it easier to be fully present? What we can use some of the skillful reflections, bringing to mind skillful acts that we've done recently here for the benefit of others reflecting on the people we've helped, not in a way to build up ego or to get caught in the story of ego, but just simply to reaffirm our interconnectedness with others. This is called allocentric thinking, not idiocentric. You'll know you're in the presence of a skillful thought when it doesn't keep demanding your attention and when amidst that thought you have a greater awareness of the world around you. When we're in the presence of an unskillful thought, the Buddha says the mind does what he calls tamiyata. We become spotlight on the words and the ideas. When the thought is skillful, we still can feel the body, hear the sounds, feel the sensations of standing or sitting. The thought is just one of many sensations and impressions that are available to us. And also, a, a skillful thought is one that we can easily put down. An unskillful thought is one that will constantly nag at our attention. Now, of course, you might say, suppose I'm in a room that's on fire. Wouldn't the, it would be difficult to put that thought down? Room's on fire, maybe I should leave. Well, of course. If it's a thought that's actionable, that you can follow do it, if it's not harmful. Most of the thoughts that, that uh, are very repetitive uh, and demanding will not be so skillful. The second tool the Buddha recommends is to simply investigate the thought from the outside rather than to debate it or try to push it away. Just ask ourselves a simple question that allows us to analyze whether the thought is useful. One of my teachers, uh, a monk, suggested the very simple idea that he used. I didn't find this very attractive, but I'll give you an example of what some practitioners use. He said, whenever a thought again and again and again pops into my mind, I like to ask myself, if there was a microphone in my head that was broadcasting this thought around the world and everybody could hear my thought, 
would I feel good about it or not? <laughs> when I heard that, I thought, well, that rules out about every thought I've ever had, so I'm not so sure that I want to do that practice. So I settled instead with the uh, practice of asking myself, is this a thought I would ever tell someone that I cared about, a friend? So, for example, when the thought comes up, uh, what am I going to do when I get back to the States? I have all these emails and stuff that I haven't attended to. I have all these projects that I haven't answered, blah, blah, blah. I asked myself, if Kathy was here, which she is, fortunately, would I go up to her constantly and tap her on the shoulder and go, what are you going to do when you get back? What are you going to do when you get back? What are you going to do? Are you going to answer all those emails? Are you going to, are you going to take that opportunity? Are you going to ask about the, the article you're writing for blah, blah, blah? What are you going to do? No, I wouldn't. I'd let her be. At most, I would, I would try. At most, what I would do is say, hey, it's been a while since we've eaten. Maybe we should uh, have a rose apple or you look tired, maybe you might want to lie down. Those are the kind of thoughts I might gently say to a friend. But most of the thoughts I have in my head, what's going to happen to you when you get older? Are you going to have enough money? I would never go up to a friend repeatedly as often as that. How you going to survive? What's going to happen to you? Oh my God! You're a Buddhist teacher in America. That's the stupidest thing you could possibly do. So that's analyzing the thought from a different perspective. Another perspective that Ajahn Lee talked about is just asking, well, if this thought was going to play out again and again and again for the rest of my life, would it probably lead somewhere good? A lot of the times when we investigate our thoughts from that perspective, they immediately become unappealing and easy to put down. For me, the most important tool uh, and the Buddha returns to this theme over and over and over again, is whenever there's a repetitive thought, to welcome it. Like you'd welcome a, uh, 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 somebody, but then go into the body and find that underlying inclination, impulse we talked about, that's always going to be there. Now, first, this idea of locating what is beneath each thought in the body can sound very strange. We like to believe that our thoughts are things that happen pretty much without any underlying physical component to it. But actually one of the more profound recognitions that happens in a meditation retreat is that if we keep just allowing the thought to be there, but instead of being fixated by it, bring awareness and look for that subtle tension in the chest that's with thoughts of loneliness, that subtle feeling in the belly that is always beneath thoughts of fear, that subtle feeling in the throat when we are in the presence of thoughts of uh, times that we wish we had acted or spoken differently, that 
presence of tension in the forehead and in the jaw when we're frustrated with other people. If we begin to discern the underlying sensations in the body, then what we can, that are beneath each thought, then we can relax those sensations using the breath. And doing so, we can then find that the thought that was so sticky and so demanding eventually begins to settle and to become less attractive. And then, rather than needing to push it away or do anything about it, it simply becomes one of many impressions and possible perceptions that are floating about. And we don't need to suppress or deny or get rid of anything. We just simply return again and again to our home in the body. So let's do a little bit of practice, and then I'm going to save some time for any questions about... So, just find a really comfortable seated position. So, for the purpose of these uh, instructions, first I'll lead you a little bit in some of Ajahn Lee's method two of developing inner peace, but then I'm going to purposely have you bring up a thought so that we can investigate some of the tools we talked about. So just, let's take three common breaths. This is the way I start my meditations. I'll Breathe in and I'll lift my shoulders up with the first in-breath, like I'm trying to touch my ears, and then I breathe out and I relax the shoulders, and then I suddenly pull them a little bit back just to open up the chest. And the other thing I do is I tilt my head a little back just to, like I'm looking at a tall mountain. and that's enough to keep my, my upper body from slouching. And that's all I do. The second in-breath, I tighten the belly while I'm breathing in. So I pull in my belly as tight as I can. I hold and then as I breathe out, I soften the belly. And for the third in-breath, I tighten any other muscles that I'd like. My fists, buttocks, toes, face. I hold and then I breathe out. And then I use my awareness just to survey the body and see if there's anything I'd like to adjust. So feel free to change anything that will make you feel comfortable. Throughout the meditations we do here, if you ever feel pain, the practice will not be to just sit and observe the pain but rather to first, after we breathe into the area, if it still is present, just 
ask yourself, how can I quietly, without disturbing the people around me, how can I make myself feel more comfortable, silently shifting a position, and then settling back in? So in the Ajahn Lee method, he uses the in-breath to relax all the areas of the body. I'll just give a couple of examples. So start by feeling as if you could breathe in to the eyes. What would it feel like? Breathing in and softening the micro-muscles. And then as you breathe out, feel the energy or the tension in all the muscles below the eyes relaxing. So it's like we're breathing in through the eyes and then as we breathe out the shoulders relax, the neck relaxes, the chest relaxes, the back, the buttocks, the legs. Breathing in through the eyes again, holding the sensation and then the breath energy like a warm, easeful shower of soothing sensations just relaxing down. You could breathe in through the center of the forehead if you'd like, and then relaxing down the body. Of course, we're not literally breathing in through the forehead, it's just asking ourselves, what would it feel like if we could or just feel that area of the body softening as we breathe in and then relaxing down the body. And then you could move this awareness around the body. So you could say, for example, what would it feel like to breathe in through the chest Imagining yourself breathing in there and then releasing the breath energy. <coughs> breathing in through the center of the belly, feeling the belly expand and then releasing the breath energy radiating out through the body and releasing any tension. So you could continue to do that throughout the body, breathing in, for example, through the left palm, just feeling the sensations there as we breathe in, and then as we breathe out, just feel the ease radiating up the arm, into the shoulder, and throughout the body. And Lee's method goes on to suggest that if we are anxious, 
to focus on extending the length of the out-breath as long as we can. Some forest monks talk about making the out-breath twice as long as the in-breath. So, for example, if we're anxious and the mind is jumpy, breathing into a count of four and then releasing the breath to a count of eight. On the other hand, if we're tired, breathing deeply in and holding the breath for much longer than we're accustomed to before breathing out. If you're really tired, open up one eyelid as you breathe in, for instance, the left eyelid, and then you breathe out, close it. Then as you breathe in, again, open up the right eyelid and then close it as you breathe out. So just for the purposes of practice, at this point bring to mind purposely a thought that might normally cause some stress, a thought that would be difficult to put down. Could be a thought about financial worries, confusion about what are we going to do for the rest of our lives. A thought of disappointment with someone that we still haven't forgiven. Purposely inviting the mind to climb aboard one of its thought trains that will lead us nowhere good. First technique, again, that we could use if we find ourselves caught is we could simply ask ourselves right now, right here, how can I appreciate all that is present? How can I feel grateful for being here? at this moment, at this time. Gratitude for the body that keeps me alive, for the people who cook, for the people who support my practice, for the friendships I've made here, for the generosity of others. All these thoughts will be far less likely to cause suffering. 
Or we could ask ourselves, would I really tell this thought to someone else that I cared about? Would I really tell them that they should worry about their future or obsess about an exchange in their past? Well, finally, we could simply, while the thought is present, bring awareness into the body and find that subtle tightness. that occurs whenever an unskillful, stressful thought appears. And just simply use Ajahn Lee's breathing in and relaxing. Again and again find what's going on below, returning home to the body. Using the breath to relax, extending, releasing the out-breath. So I'm going to ring the bowl, and then, as usual, the request is to take the entire length of the sound to slowly open up the eyes and look at the ground in front of us and to incorporate sight into the embodied awareness. <laughs> 